Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I had to go about it, write it out, and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. It's the final word cricket podcast, season 15, episode 23. Adam Collins with you in London. Jeff Lemon on his sofa in Melbourne. Hello to you, Jeff. Busy show today. Hello, busy show. Yep, I've got a cold. Um, It's late. I'm tired, but but it has been a week in which the cricket has not stopped. There has been, there, there have been like 43 test matches happening <laughs> all around the world. Every minute, every waking minute, every waking second of every day has been dedicated to who is bowling a third spell, who's coming back, who's digging deep at the end of the second session, what's happening towards stumps as the shadows lengthen across the pitch. And, and here we are. It's, it's time to dig into it. We're just going to have to dig deep. We've got a, an entire segment off the front of the show devoted to women's cricket. There's a lot going on in that world as well, both on and mm-hmm. off the field. And we'll start by just our reflections, I think, on the Vizag test match because we haven't had a chance to talk about that yet. I was away uh, down in Margate for the weekend and cricket followed me there as well to an extent. I was walking down the pier at Margate and um, popping up in my peripheral vision was Ed Smith, the former England batsman and um, and chairman <laughs> of selectors. Until selector. Was, he was, yeah, he was the selector, wasn't he? Mm. He was the, the chief. Supremo selector. selector for a few years there and um, just kind of caught each other's eyes. Crowd say bow selector. <laughs> always got on quite well with Ed and uh, saw him uh, across the pier and walked over towards him. And as I moved in that direction, Winnie tripped over 
she was holding my hand at the time, but she kind of fell over her dress. She was wearing a, uh, wearing a frozen dress as she does most days these days and, um, mm-hmm. and smashed her face on the, uh, she face planted oh. on the pier. And uh, we were very lucky that the teeth that went into oh, her lip didn't no. go all the way through. So she had this like face full of blood and like, oh, in, and like what do I do? Uh, hi, Ed, this is my daughter, Winnie. And he's like, uh, and I'm like, yeah, we better, yeah, let's talk another time. But, um, she was fine. We, it, 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 oh, it did mean our plans on, on Friday night were somewhat curtailed, but she, joined me um, watching Dulwich play Margate and uh, an impressive 4-1 victory on the Saturday afternoon. I had a great time. So the weekend was recovered somewhat. But yes, didn't expect to run into into cricket, um, as it were, when trying to have something of a seaside weekend away. Yeah, I mean, so she's okay. She's um, yeah. She's, she's oh yeah, yeah. Back. I mean, yeah. That she was shaken up, of course, because she was bleeding everywhere. Mm. And, you know, kids and blood, right? And uh, we were shaken up for a couple of minutes when we thought for a second yeah. that she might have gone through the lip, which would have been a, a trip. Oh to hospital, yeah. But, um, but it didn't probably more so. Away. It's probably more more terrifying for the parents than the to children. Yeah, she's she's a brave because of consequences and all the rest of it. it. It does occur to me that you know that the sort of stuff that Ed Smith did when he was in charge would fit with the current era. In a way, it seems like yeah. they hired him too early and fired him too early because he probably should be there now, making the kind of selection calls that they're making now, thinking outside the box a bit, crossing the lines between red ball and white ball stuff, being all about taking the game forward, you know, he's he's the selector who rejuvenated Joss Butler for a while and got Adel Rashid back into the test side and all the rest of it. And it it might might have been the perfect fit had the timelines uh, moved slightly differently. It's a good point. I remember when he took over as chief selector, it would have been 2018. He did these sort of fireside chats, so not quite a press conference. Like the cameras went on, it would be like, mm. you know, 20 of us sat around a table and they would last like 45 minutes because yeah. there were so Everyone many questions. Yeah, quite. But everyone was so interested in what he had to say and like he'd give long answers and he would explain his thinking and the, the World Cup squad of 2019 was an example of that when he brought mm. Jofra Archer in at the last minute. And that was easy to rewrite history now, but that was a controversial pick on the back of the fact that yeah. they were quite a settled team and, and Archer came in and, of course, did amazing things. But but still, he had to explain his workings and leaving David Willey out. And I think that's a reasonable observation there from you that had he been coming along a few years later, his legacy in the job would be better but um, mm. I suppose timing is everything uh, in cricket as we as we learn often or in a way he you know maybe he sort of built the runway for what they've ended up doing with the test side yep. by doing it with the more with the one day side first but a little bit with the test side as well and mm. opened up the possibility for for things to be more inventive who knows mm. um uh, right but it, it, it's interesting it's interesting um Jasper Boomer has gone number 1 uh, in the world the first indian fast bowler i like this they've had quite a few spinners up at number 1 over time including the retrospective yeah the icc rankings mm. are a bit of nonsense in a way because they they They've managed to reverse engineer them all the way back to, you know, bloody Andy Sandham was probably number one back in 1929 or whatever, I'm I'm sure. They have rankings for Bradman in 34 being number one and so on. But even with the retrospective stuff, there's never been an Indian fast bowler recognised as the best bowler in the world. And it's been interesting looking at at what Boomer did, I mean, that incredible masterclass that he put on in Vizag, but also that um, the, the way that he's talked about where, you know, you and others were saying, where does he sit in relation to the kind of Rabada, Cummins, Boomer? So they're, they're, they're all as brilliant as each other, but he's played 
so much less test cricket that when you just look at sort of bulk of wickets, he's he's around the 150 mark, the other's around the 250-300 sort of mark because he's had injury absences, he came into um, top-line cricket a bit later as a slightly older player, that kind of thing. So he doesn't have the, the bulk of resume, but but pound for pound in terms of the innate quality of the player, he's probably better than all the rest of them. It's interesting when you try to assess the quality and 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 float in words like greatness, I suppose. Yeah, it's a, it's a really significant uh, achievement, I think. And I, I quite like the retrospective rankings. It won't surprise you to learn, Jeff, you know, when Steve Smith got – he nearly got up with Hobbs, didn't he? The, uh, Bradman's got the highest marker ever, which is recorded, I'm pretty sure, in 1934. But the next one down is there's a Hobbs – moment in time uh, and I think Smith got within like two points of that at one stage in 2017 but never quite eclipsed it so yeah I'm into that as a segue but yeah with with Boomerah it is a significant thing because Indian fast bowlers just weren't something that rolled off the tongue I remember going back to that 2018 series with England and India again we were there a moment ago discussing this with Harsha quite a bit in our post-play conversations he's like what is this I'm in England watching the Indian fast bowlers out bowl the England fast bowlers now of course India lost that series 4-1 but with Bumrah and Shami and Ishant and Umesh I mean this generation have come through broadly at the same time or within a few years of each other. And a big part of it is the IPL and scouring every corner of the country for every type of cricketer, when in the past there was such an emphasis on developing spin. Well, you know, the IPL changed the economics of cricket in India. Boomerah being an unconventional bowler, there being space for someone like him. Mukesh Kumar, the other day, there's a nice piece that Jared Kimber wrote on his substack going through all of the backstories. And Mukesh was, uh, you know, overlooked uh, for a job at one stage for not being fit enough. And now he's playing test cricket for India at age 30. So, you know, hopefully that production line will will continue to deliver for India. But Boomer at the moment, yeah, it's the variety, isn't it? The, the way he's able to do so many different things at such a high level. I mentioned that in the wrap-up show a couple of days ago with Cam that, that sets him apart. And, um, and yeah, an average of 20.3, which is less, of course, than or lower than, than both Cummins and Rabada. So, you know, the three of them coming through together at the same time. There are others, of course, but those three typically are the three we talk about as best in the world at any given moment. And, yeah, Boomer, he's never taken a 10-wicket match, but he's taken a stack of matches where he's got like eight for 47 match figures or something like that because he he's very hard to get away as well. So, yeah, loved, loved every bit of what he did at Vizag and, and glad he's got to number one. Uh, I'd like to send a big final word congratulations to the Murrumbidgee Mancatters, um, a team that was put together in in some small part thanks to the inspiration of the, the things that we've talked about on the final word over the years. Uh, they got their first win in the last couple of weeks, uh, Adam, after 21 ah. straight defeats. The Murrumbidgee Mancatters are finally on the board. Testament to all involved to 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 keep pushing on when things are when you're in struggle town at club level they finally knocked off an opponent in the local leagues for the first time so well done to Michael Hargraves and company up there I've got the playing shirt from from Michael he brought mm. it to our live show in, in Melbourne um, Rach asked whether it was mine because uh, he's quite a bit smaller than I am it probably fits Rach better than it does me but yeah maybe I'll get it out and post a photo in recognition of their first win good mm. on them Yep, well, they're, they're playing in sort of uh, West Indies World Series mm. Salmon Pink, which has created quite a stir, and they've also been willing to take the bales off at the non-strikers end, which has also created quite a stir um, and, and caused quite a few incidents in the <laughs> games that they have been playing in. And I thought it was also worth mentioning, given the the number of episodes in which we've talked about the TV series Blue Murder, that uh, Roger Rogerson died a couple of weeks ago mm. um, 
good probably. I mean, you know, there's the old don't speak ill of the dead, but some people have a different categorisation than others. Uh, he died in prison or he was let out of prison briefly to go to hospital and, and die, so he spent his last years in there after uh, one of the many murders that he committed. Angus Fontaine, our, our colleague at The Guardian, wrote a, a brilliant obit, not not your usual obituary, but he'd, he'd had a bit to do with Rogerson over the years in a journalistic sort of um, capacity and uh, had the inside track to, to tell a bit of the story. But um, it's it's a significant moment in time when the, the most crooked cop in New South Wales of, well, certainly of the last 50 or so years has finally shuffled off the branch for the last time. Yeah, good riddance. Right, okay, what are we going to talk about? Let's talk about South Africa knocking off Australia for the second time in the matter of a week or so. The South African women's team had never beaten Australia in, in any match up until just before we recorded the weekly show last week. They did so, beat them in a T20 game, and now they've turned around and beat them in a 50-over match for the first time. The other games in that series haven't gone so well for South Africa. They lost the T20 series 2-1 and got toweled up pretty comprehensively in those other two games, and it looks like similar uh, is probably going to happen in the 50-over series. They got uh, smashed up in the first ODI, got absolutely beaten thoroughly. They were bowled out for 105 South Africa and Marazone Cap made most of those runs on her own. But they have come back and they have beaten Australia in a one-day international for the first time to add to the T20 um, that they managed to notch. This is massive, right? They had that tie at Coffs Harbour. I reckon that was Amanda Wellington's international debut in, in 2016, but have never beaten Australia in, in a one-day. And, you know, you go back to that first match in Adelaide on, on Saturday. It was a total non-event. Australia win by eight wickets after bowling them out for 105. The only resistance from Cap, who had to retire her when she copped a ball just above the elbow. And they were, they were quite worried about whether she might have broken her arm, but that wasn't the case. And you know, more runs for, for Beth Mooney, an unbeaten half-century. She'd made runs in the T20s as well, having had a rough trot in India where she wasn't really making much of a contribution. But Mooney, you know, as ever, in Australia, one of the most dominant players in the lineup, And it was the, the big day around Rachel Haynes and Meg Lanning's farewell. So they were able to celebrate all of that, cars around the outfield and, and so on, backs of cars, you know how they do that thing where you farewell the retired great... I'll pop them in the ute. Yeah, yeah you've got Harris it. at the Gabba. You've, got it. you've yeah. got it. So, um, you know, leaving that, you're thinking, well, you know, South Africa have had their moment in the T20, but that'll be that. Can Cap even play? Well, can she ever? This second game, for once our timing's good when we're recording, Jeff. We, we were originally going to record this episode before the end of the, the one day, but we held off and I'm glad we did because South Africa have done it big time. They've won by 84 runs under lights at North Sydney. They got 229 for six in their 45 overs. It was rain affected the first innings, but cap 75 from 87, top scoring, had support from Chloe Tryon down the list, the all-rounder making 37. At one stage, Australia wanted to review a leg before decision with Tryon when she was on 16, but they weren't allowed to because one of the replays had already flashed up on the big screen with inside the 15 seconds. So without giving much away, that that's the first of many unusual moments in the game that we're going to discuss over the next hour or so, quite a bit in men's cricket with obstructing the field and, and that kind of thing. Anyway, then Cat with 229 to defend, tears through Australia. They bowl him out for 149. Cap gets Healy, caught behind driving early on, knocks over Beth Mooney for a second ball duck with a glorious in-swinger. Gets Litchfield with one that's full and straight for 14. Australia a 34 for three. But it wasn't just a one bowler effort. I mean, I think when we 
think about great South African victories, Jeff, often it's like one player, you know, it's, it's often Cap, right? Or it's been Vanee Kirk or it's been Wolvart. This was a, a, a team effort with the ball. So after Cap made the, the big incision going through the top order, they've got, I'll get a pronunciation right here, Ayanda Halubi, I think was how I'll, I'll go with it at the moment, playing her first one-day international, a 19-year-old, another one of these South African right arm medium paces who moves the ball around, get to Lise Perry, for two as their first one-day wicket. I mean, that's it's like when um, Craig Overton, his first international wicket was Steve Smith that, uh, that jumped out at me, as, or the many bowlers who got Sachin Tendulkar the first time. Well, this is the equivalent in women's cricket. You know, getting Perry as your first wicket really does mean something. She also bowled Georgia Wareham. Then there was another South African seamer that came to the party as well, Elise Murray-Marks, who gets Sutherland caught behind for one, playing her fourth one day, 21 years old, another right-arm swing bowler. And then Nadine DeClick gets involved as well, a more senior bowler in the group now, gets two wickets of her own, including Talia McGrath caught behind for 22. At that stage, in walks Kim Garth to join Ash Gardner, 71 for eight. So they're deeply in the hole. But, you know, with Australia, you think with Gardner there and Garth very capable with, with the bat, anything's possible. And they take them from 71 to 148. And you're probably thinking with 20 overs to go, they'll probably run it down. But at that point, Gardner... He's also caught behind to the keeper, Jafta, who took three important catches. Marks was the bowler, her second wicket, and they were all out shortly thereafter. So they've lost to Australia twice in two weeks, having never beaten them before. Now they've got one in the T20 format, one in the 50-over format. Cap finished with three for 12 with their 75. What a champion. And now they go to the, the series decider, also at North Sydney on the weekend and into the, the test match at Perth starting on the 15th of Feb, Jeff. And I suppose in in the multi-format context with South Africa having won two matches, if they – I'm not sure how it would work. If Australia win there, can South Africa still tie the multi-format series? Can you do that if you win? So Australia, it would be eight for going into the test yeah, match if Australia won the last ODI, so they could – tie it up. There wouldn't be a previous trophy to be played for, so I suppose it would be shared at that point. But if South Africa can knock them off in the uh, in the third ODI, then there'd be a chance to win the series. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and it's also interesting what's going on with the scorecards. So when Marazan Cap was hit and retired, what's going on at CrickBuzz, guys? Because the scorecard on the CrickBuzz website said that she was retired out and, and I noticed that particularly because they did the same thing when Shamar Joseph got smashed on the toe in Brisbane. They had him retired out for three. That's not what happened. He retired hurt and Marisan Cap retired hurt. And they're different because if you retire out, you're regarded as dismissed. It counts as a dismissal in your stats and you can't come back and bat again. Retired hurt, you can. And this is it's clearly filtered into the actual statistics of the websites because if you look at Crick Info compared to Crick Buzz, for instance. Uh, look at Shamar Joseph. He's made 57 runs in his test career. Um, he's had four innings and he's been out twice because one of them was a retired hurt, which is not out. So on Crick Info, he's averaging 28.5 and on Crick Buzz, he's averaging 19 because they've got him with three dismissals because they've got him listed as retired out. So sort out your stats at the back end at the buzz because it's not working. I'm not sure how it's gone wrong with the retirements over the last few weeks, but it has done. Got to say, I, I have always thought that if you're retired, hurt, and then there was the end of the inning. So, you know, in other words, nine out, all out. I've always thought that the retired, hurt batter became dismissed. 
Uh, I no, said to you before we recorded that I, I've been given yeah. out that, yeah, you know, I've been recorded as out that way myself when I was playing junior cricket. And I just always took it as read that if you are retired hurt and elect not to resume your innings, that you you migrate from retired hurt to retired out for statistical purposes. So maybe Crick Buzz are interpreting it that way and Crick Info are, well, clearly they're interpreting it a different way, but um, yeah. that, that's one it's, for you. It, Andrew Sampson's of this world to clarify, I think. It's interesting. So that I mean, I, the only thing I can think of is that may be the case at local cricket level. But what it what it's the way it's supposed to work is that if you've retired hurt and you don't come back to resume your innings, then your side is all out at nine down or whatever it might be. Or in the famous India West Indies test that we've talked about on Story Time, when it was five down, at one point you've got it. You've got a an innings where India are all out at five down because they've got five players absent, injured or retired, hurt. Um, but, but you're still not out. You're still, you're, you're still not recorded as having been dismissed. You just haven't returned to resume your innings. I think Beatty, I think the difference there was, I think Beatty declared, didn't he? Didn't he just kind of, as a statement, say, we're not continuing, we're declaring the innings closed at no, five I down? No, I don't think it was a declaration. I think it was that they, they already had about three players in hospital and a couple more who who decided that the injuries they'd picked up in the first innings were sufficient to preclude them from attending the crease a okay. second time. Okay. I just want to go back to the South African women's side for a second, what they've achieved here. I genuinely thought 10 months ago they were going to fall off a cliff. You know, they'd made that World Cup mm. final against Australia. They'd had the internal stoush around Vanikirk. They had a similar kind of conversation around Lizelle Lee, ahead of the Commonwealth games, I think it was, Jeff, if memory serves me correctly, about her being left out mm-hmm. on fitness grounds as well. And it just had that energy, like talking to players around the group at Fairbreak and so on. The impression I was getting was that the internal drama with South African Tide was going to see them be not only a team that hadn't met its potential, but it was about to tear itself apart. But they've settled mm-hmm. really well. Uh, and Marazan Cap, who she's married to Vanee Kirk, the former captain, there is that interpersonal thing going on as well, that she's playing... Mm-hmm as part of the side that effectively kicked their wife out, that's not for nothing. But ever the professional Marazan Cap, what a cricketer she is. And it's, but it's not just her. I come back to it before. I guess well, it's not just her, right? There are other players in that side. One thing to throw in there, Dane, she's coming back. Is she? Coming back. She, she teased it on commentary during wow. the second game. She said she wants to play in the T20 World Cup. Oh, here we go. Later this year, end of September, October. And now that they've, dropped the ridiculous hurdles that they had in place that stopped from playing in the first place. She's potentially on the path to a comeback. And if that happened, you know, what a boost that would be for this side if they could pop in a number six who can smash the ball over the mid-wicket boundary and who can bowl ripping leg breaks, be a pretty useful pickup for this team. Only 32, I reckon, today as well. So, yeah, there's time. There's definitely time there. We know the women's international cricket just quickly. Um, Ireland thumped Zimbabwe 5-0 in a T20 series this week after they mm-hmm. won two of the three one days, they tied the other. I'm just sort of noting that, that you know, Ireland are a more established women's side than Zimbabwe. That's worth mentioning that Zimbabwe Mm. didn't play a lot until a couple of years ago. They're kind of on their way back, um, whereas Ireland have played a lot more cricket. And Ireland have professional contracts as well. But still, like going over and beating Zimbabwe. Ireland have also debuted more 13-year-olds than any other team in history. I mean, they're a a team that has run on very scant resources in player terms uh, over the past 20 years. Yeah, but that is changing, I guess is my point. Ireland have now got professional contracts for... I think it's 10 players. I think I'm right in saying it's 10. And the, the economics have changed. And like, it's the, it's the model, isn't it? If you invest in 
in women's cricket and provide contracts, they will be more competitive and they will beat sides who don't have them. That's, I guess, the wider point here that they have now mm-hmm. given themselves a chance to qualify for that World Cup you mentioned. That's the set piece or the centrepiece of the year, isn't it? The, the T20 World Cup in Bangladesh. So for that, the qualification tournament is in the UAE in April for the final two spots. Bangladesh are there by virtue of being the host Australia, England, India, South Africa, New Zealand and the Windies get there based on the results in the previous tournament. Pakistan have already qualified based on their ranking at the start of 2024. And then you get two more teams that in all probability, it'll be two out of Ireland, Sri Lanka, you know, who beat England in a series last year and Thailand who've been a revelation. So the depth is getting there. It's not just a case of like, four or five teams, it's coming, it's happening. And that's that's really exciting. And, and Scotland would be the other smoky there, I think. They're a pretty good side. Um, the UAE um, have got some talent too. They'll, they'll, they'll take some scalps in that qualification tournament, given it is in the UAE at their home grounds, albeit without Mahika Gower, because, I mean, the UAE have had the benefit of having Mahika in that side in their last couple, of, uh, last couple of qualification attempts. But, of course, she's now um, playing for England, although um, she's not going to New Zealand. We're going to come to um, the England-New Zealand series that's been announced in a sec, but Mahika is staying home for that because she's got to complete her A-levels, which is um, quite, yeah. quite reasonable given that she goes to that lovely school uh, up there in um, – in Cheshire, isn't it, that she'd um, be putting her education first given she's about 17. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, she's, she's 17. She has to go to a, a beach at night with her friends and drink a <laughs> bottle of vanilla essence poured into a 600ml Coca-Cola Quite. Um, and live to regret the consequences. Yeah, um, <laughs> the important things that you have to do at that age. Uh, there's also been there's the small matter of the entire restructure of England women's cricket, yeah. which, I mean, we'll, we'll probably talk about more on the show when we get to have a chat with somebody about the the finer details and the ramifications but in very very brief terms they're looking at a complete overhaul of the system that they've got where at the moment you've got a smaller number of sort of regional teams that aren't directly connected to any of the counties individually but they're kind of spread across counties this will be more like counties specifically need to develop women's programs but there'll be a three-tier system there'll be a a top tier of what is eight teams in the top tier that'll be professional and then there'll be a kind of semi-pro second and third tier and they'll gradually work out how they do promotion relegation between the three and and so what form the second and third tier will take will be um, calculated over the next couple of years but there'll be a there'll be a top tier I mean it's pretty easy to guess which way it's going to go in terms of the biggest clubs the ones with the test grounds the ones with the most money um, and who's going to end up with the top tier women's clubs so will McPherson break this story originally who's got his finger on the pulse of all things England cricket um, that I mean, it will be a three-tier system. For the first four years of it, between 25 and and 29, there will be no promotion relegation. There's more money uh, being injected into women's cricket through this. So the sell is that there'll be more resources to make more professional cricketers, which, of course, is a good thing. The system is working, by the way. Like the England system, the eight regions um, over, well, you could argue it kind of started back in the Keir Super League days, but really started during the pandemic in, in 2020 when they first had that influx of semi-professional cricketers, the first batch of non-national contracts, if you like. But it is an interesting concession as well. The idea was that these eight regions over time would have their own supporter bases, would have their own commercial clout and so on. And 
it's just not happened. You just don't get crowds to these games. So there's a mm. bit of a, an, an acknowledgement there that the first-class counties, the traditional 18 counties, do have a role here in, in funding of women's cricket in the way they fund the men's game and in bringing people through the gates the way they bring the people through the gates for the men's game as well. So the 18 first-class counties plus the MCC have been invited to tender. You would expect that the, the usual suspects, the test-playing, air quotes, counties plus possibly Somerset, will be in the box seat to get looked after. So even though Middlesex aren't a particularly strong county in women's cricket at the moment, you can see a world where they get looked after in Tier 1 because they play at Lords, maybe in conjunction with the MCC or, or something like that. Yeah, surely they'd have to. That, that was the weirdest bit for me was that they said the counties and the MCC. You've already got a county based at Lords. Surely that would be a... a mutual enterprise to try to get a side going there. You'd hope so. Like the women aren't really based at Lords though. Like they don't do anything really at Lords other than represent Middlesex whose who's men play there. So this might be a chance to get the Middlesex women to Lords because as it stands at the moment, the regions are all represented by multiple counties. So yeah, I feel a little bit for a side like the Vipers who've developed this wonderful culture, right? Like under Charlotte Edwards, they've won everything. Mm. We've spoken a lot about it on the show and that'll that'll evaporate once we get to 2025. So, yeah, yeah, it is a, a watch this space. I was surprised by it. I just assumed that they were, these were going to be the the structures or these were going to be the teams that, that represented domestic cricket for England for women in perpetuity, but not to be. So uh, another shift, a fairly big shift and, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll keep an eye on it. And, yeah, as you say, we might get, um, we might get someone on to talk about it in more depth. And in the meantime, we've got England going to New Zealand to play five T20s, but, some of the big name players won't be playing the first three of them because they'll be in India playing the WPL. So we've got this franchise circuit taking primacy over international cricket starting to happen in the women's game as well. So yeah, five T20s and three one days starting in the middle of March. The headline should be that Holly Armitage, who's been a superstar at the Diamonds, gets her first chance, right? Or it should be that Lindsay Smith returns to England ranks after four years and she got gets back through the work she's done with the Vipers and spent that time in the the wilderness and so on. But the real story is those who aren't going to be there for the first three T20s, as you say. Eccleston, Siverbrunt and Wyatt have WPL commitments. And, you know, the economics dictate this. Think about the match fee that they'll be getting or giving up by not playing. I think it's totally fine they've made this decision. But I also think that we'll look back on this as a moment. I mean, how long have we been saying, and many people around the women's game been saying, don't make the same mistakes with scheduling that the men have had. Don't make the same mistakes. Well, because the BCCI shock have taken so long to reveal when the WPL dates will be, it's meant that New Zealand cricket had to take a bit of a guess as to when they could squeeze this series in. They've got it broadly right, but there's this crossover by three games and it does mean there's this unnecessary drama. And yeah, I, I mean, look, it, it feels to me like this is one of those moments in time where, yes, we all support uh, robust highly profitable domestic women's T20 uh, private enterprise circuit. That's great for the players. No one's disputing that, but we need to find a way or the architecture needs to be there so that players aren't being forced to choose between franchise and country um, at this early stage. It seems like the sort of thing that we are conditioned to with men's cricket, but we shouldn't accept it in women's cricket. Not yet anyway. There's still room. We still There's still time. You know what I mean? All right. I've got, I think we should do no pledge after the break because I think we have to get to it. it it's going to be, I've spent spent a bit of time on this tonight and I'm, I'm interested to share it with you. Before that, I have to tell you a quick story. It's about 1984, not the book by George Orwell, but 
the year that the building union's superannuation scheme was established. It was just a bus scheme at that point, not a C-bus scheme, just a building union superannuation, BUS, established to settle a major industrial dispute in the building and construction industry. It was tense. They were difficult times. Lines were drawn. Friendships were forged. Enemies were made. Uh, Union leaders and Australian Council of Trade Union officials negotiated for the BUS to be controlled by a board comprising equal numbers of employer and employee union representatives. This is what it's all about. It's about having representation of workers by workers, establishing the consensus-based trustee structure, which to this day, 40 years later, is at the heart of industry super funds, including CBUS, who are our friends on this show. The design was unique. It made CBUS the first of the industry super funds. Um, and from those early days, a group of visionaries like Tom McDonald, not the former GWS footballer Tom McDonald, a different one, Gary Weaven and Mavis Robertson, they all worked tirelessly with others to create something better for building and construction industry workers. Nicely summed up. And yes, those first members contributing $11 per week in 1984. Well, now four decades on, Seabus has grown to 900,000 members, 85 billion funds under management as of the middle of last year, an average return of 8.89% since inception in 1984. They're impressive numbers. Adam, imagine you gave Biff Tannen 11 bucks in 1985, and you said, with your sports almanac, do what you will with this. Imagine the returns. That's what happened with those people who put in their $11 a week in 1984. Absolutely. My dad formally retired last week, Jeff, and um, oh. which is a nice thing. So, uh, g'day to dad if you're listening. You probably are. You might be. Sometimes you do. I just assumed he would have retired early um, just to beat the traffic. Yeah, quite. But uh, in retiring, he has access to the superannuation that he's been contributing to probably for the duration of the, the 40 years of industry funds have been have been going, if you think about his work life. So, um, yeah, that story's there. Um, I'm seeing it uh, at the moment inside my own family, cbysuper.com.au. Past performance isn't a reliable indicator of future performance, but bloody hell, they're good. Get in touch with them and get your super sorted out. After the break, as Jeff mentioned, we've got Nerd Pledge. We've got a lot of men's cricket. As I said before, it's a busy show. Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now's the time to save 30% on wedding jewelry. Only on bluenile.com. Make sure your wedding ring is the one with your pick of diamond and lab-grown diamond bands, all hand-finished and graded for excellence. Or surprise her with something blue she'll love for life, like a stunning pair of sapphire earrings. Blue Nile's jewelry experts are available 24-7 to help, from fit questions to style advice. 
Right now, get up to 30% off at BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford Brent, and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. This is the final word, Jeff Lemon, Adam Collins. Just quickly, if you want to snag the NordVPN discount that we've been talking about so that people can get VPN so you can do what you want to do on the internet without having people looking down your neck, sports and entertainment, that's the, the major part of what we're about here. Here is the thing. Wherever you are in the world, you can still safely access your favourite sporting streams mm. and other content from home, even if you're somewhere else. I mean, some streamers don't like you to be able to do that, but honestly, why shouldn't you be able to do that? It's your subscription. You can do that with a, a VPN, particularly with Nord. You can switch your virtual location to access any app or website in any other location, and you can get access to social media and other services not available due to censorship. If you're Tucker Carl in Moscow, ready to interview Putin, then you can hop on your VPN and skirt the security protocols of the former Union of Soviet Socialist Republics um, and, and tap into, you know, I don't know, watch Bluey or whatever it is that you want to do. The first time I got a VPN, Jeff, was with you uh, in New Zealand in 2016, which was the first test tour that we did that was in England. Uh, and you explained to me how important it would be for me. Uh, and then last year I became a member of the, the Nord subscription service when I was uh, mm-hmm. on my honeymoon and I wanted to watch the Matildas play. And that's why I signed up to Nord yep. VPN. Worked a treat then, works a treat now. You can get a massive discount through us, four months free if you sign up to the two-year deal, nordvpn.com slash TFW. That link is in the show notes. Uh, it's one of those things when they, you know, they, they struck up the partnership with us and they were like, well, you know, we'll, we've got some comp stuff for you. Here's your links to get a free VPN. And we're like, yes, we've, we've both already paid for it. We've already subscribed. Sorry. The sad twist in this the other day was that I really needed to get Cam a VPN for some work that he was doing for us. And I'm like, it was on the weekend and I had no ability to contact Nord. I'm like, so I had to buy, we bought Cam, a Nord VPN subscription. Uh, I don't know if we used to find a word discount code, but he's, Cam's now uh, a member so as well. <laughs> sign him up for the full two years. Um, you get four months free. Uh, all right, let's play a game. Let's play a little bit of Nerd Pledge. Nerd Pledge, the game we play with nice people on the internet who fund this program. This is how it works. This is the bread and butter of what we do. People send in money to this show in amounts that are a clue. The number forms a clue. It relates to cricket in some way. We have to figure out what it means. David Nichols is our nerd pleasure with an edited number. It is £3.47. pence. Three four seven. Okay, so David, this is for you, Jeff. There is no clue. It's just the date my son was born last week. Oh, that's brilliant. That was the 22nd of uh, September when this pledge came in. So you guys have a freebie to talk about whatever you like in relation to anything, bearing in mind that when he's old enough, I will play it to him as inspiration to him to facilitate my dream of spending my retirement traveling through the world watching cricket. David, that is so good. I had it. I meant to mention this earlier. I'll do it now. Who cares? I was watching- um, Okay. 
Winnie has been a reluctant cricket watcher. And I get it, right? Okay. I'm away a lot. Why am I away a lot? Because of cricket. She cricket. not unreasonably has linked the two things at different points so far. Indeed, she started guilt tripping me the other day about her upcoming birthday because you remember, Jeff, okay. that I missed her birthday last year because I was in India working. Anyway, mm-hmm. but I, you didn't listen to me. I, I told you just to lie to her about when her birthday was. <laughs> like she's three, two, she's turning three. She doesn't know when her fucking birthday is, mate. Just yeah. to, She doesn't know when February 14th is. Just tell her it's February 14th on a different day. Yeah. She doesn't have a calendar. Just <laughs> like you've got to make use of the opportunities while you have them. You can't do it when she's seven, but you can do it when she's turning three. Yeah, well, well we did it. And I, I wouldn't say I paid a price for it, but, you know, 11 months on her quietly slipped in there, Daddy. Why were you not at my birthday last year? Fuck me. Anyway, um, the other <laughs> since Peggy is since Peggy is um, been more interested in just. Oh, first of all, Peggy just loves sitting on my lap. Yeah, it, we have a great right. thing going on. Great rapport, as I say, which Rachel enjoys me saying. A great rapport I have with my daughter, and Peggy doesn't mind watching whatever because she's one. That's fine. So I've got the cricket on with her, and Winnie has taken the sitting with Peggy and me watching this England India series. And the other day, there was the India England test going on at Vizag at the same time that the one day at the MCG that we're going to talk about in a sec that you were covering between Australia and the Windies. And Cam Green hit a big six and the TV ump- or the, the umpire was on the screen giving it the two fingers right. up to, to recognise the six runs were scored. And Peggy copied the umpire and put two fingers in the air off the telly. Huh. And I thought that was a, a nice moment for us and um, I took a photo of it at the time. And now Winnie has been asking to watch the cricket on the sofa with me. So Peggy has oh. been Peggy's been the avenue in and now we've got a new thing. So yeah. what David's describing right. there, it might take a while, but if, you know, maybe you through Nerd Pledge and, and me through our other child, we, we're getting to the same place. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, jealousy is a powerful motivator. So if, <laughs> if Winnie sees Peggy doing something, being involved, then yeah, she's true. going to want to be involved. She used to, Winnie used to do the signals as well, remember? Like, she, yeah. Remember you talking about her signaling the four, like and, watching and, the uh, World Cup replay? And, and how, the other one with the how's that, she used to yell whenever she said cricket, like she's like some mm. tip rat driving past in his car. How's that? She would do that. <laughs> Um, she would do that when seeing anything cricket related. I, I instilled that in her early, but yeah, she she cooled, but now she's um, mm. warming up again. She came and um, watched okay. me pack my cricket kit the other night when I was going off to have a net at the Oval. What's that do? What's that do? You know, she's asking the right kind of questions. Mm-hmm. So I live in hope. Okay, it, it'd be it'd be very entertaining if your three year old was like signalling a short run or something. <laughs> you know, just, just just getting into the really niche signals. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I, I David David is probably in a state of cold terror at the moment because I, I got the number wrong. I, I wrote it down wrong. It wasn't three whatever. It was two twenty nine. Obviously, because because it was the twenty second of September. Mm. So two two nine is the number that I have elected to solve this week, and I've elected to solve it as such, Adam, because it. It has relevance to the uh, Vijayagapatnam test match that we were just talking about. 2-29, 2 for 29 is what James Anderson put together in the second innings across the 10 overs that he bowled in that gorgeous spell. My goodness, that was good to watch when he knocked over Rohit Sharma with that absolute pearler and then got Jayaswal as well. Both opened us out cheaply and just for a, for a moment, England had hope they were in the game after that opening burst from Anderson. I like your pronunciation of the full city. Do it again for me. Vijagapatnam. A lot better than one that I heard um, at, at one point during the week, which described it as Visage. 
Visage. Visage. Oh, it sounds like a yeah, it sounds like <laughs> doesn't a, sound good. An urban dictionary term, doesn't it? Yeah, you're right in the visage. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's kind of it's one of those things where the transliteration into a Roman alphabet could go a number of ways. So you see it. You see it written as S H A K. Sometimes it's kind of Vishagak, but it's not Vishak. It's not Vizag. It's Vishag, in sort of in the middle. Vishakapatnam. Anyway, I had my training with Cameron Fink in 2013, learning to pronounce the name of the Icelandic volcano that erupted and stopped all of the flights across Europe. And we we made an entire video of Icelandic people teaching me how to say Eyjafjallajökull. But Right, 229, here's the thing. There's the bit, that's the good bit for James Anderson. And then there's the less good bit, which is that at the end of the match, there he is, out there with the bat, the poor bastard, doing it again. Tom Hartley batting with Shoah Bashir, who's out for a duck, and then out comes Anderson, and there's 117 runs to get, and you know they're not going to get them. It's another doomed enterprise. And Tom Hartley gets cleaned up by Boomerah, and there's Anderson at the end of a test match loss with the bat in his hand going... Fucking hell, why is it always me? And, and a, a few people um, on our, in our YouTube comments, I think, asked, how many times has it been Anderson at the end of a test match, right? Like, how many times... They were remembering the times that he's the player who's got out as well um, because, because we remember quite a few of those, you know, off the top of my head, if, like, uh, Mitchell Johnson at the Gabba in 2013 getting Anderson caught and bowled off the splice... Leeds, Leeds 2014, game. yeah, famously. Yeah, Even last yep. year at Wellington, uh, the, the, the loss by one run was Anderson down the leg side. Um, yep, yep. Uh, there have been a lot. Uh, there, yeah, I think he's got he's been out. He's been dismissed as the tenth wicket in a loss more than any player in the history of Test cricket. I know that one, but I think you're going to. I dare say. Well, well. So I, I was just curious, right? Because somebody asked the question, and I was like, okay, well, how many times has that happened? And there were ways to try to figure it out, which was to look up partnerships that he'd been involved with for the 10th wicket in losses in the fourth innings. You can apply those filters to a a stats guru thing. But then it occurred to me that there would also be times when he was out in the third innings in an innings defeat. So I had to find those as well, but I had to do that manually by looking at innings defeats from the period that he'd played in from 2003 through to now. So... We've got – it's an interesting selection. Times that he's been out in the third innings when England have lost by an innings, South Africa at the Oval and Lords 2012 and 2022. He's got six of these innings um, where he's been out in the third innings and they've lost by an innings where he's made 4-1, 2-2, 1-2. And two. He's also been not out in the third innings five other times when they've lost by an innings when someone else has got out. And then the fourth innings dismissals, he's got, what have I got? He's been out 14 times and he's been not out 14 times. So his ratio is actually pretty good. He's, he's been out only very slightly more than he's been not out, um, which given that he's usually been the number 11, should be more skewed the other way. The scores that he's made have been pretty interesting when he's been out in the fourth innings and they've lost the game one, two, two, naught, two, naught, 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 naught. I'm pretty sure that whole sequence were first ballers as well, or at least three of those ones were, were first ball ducks. He's got another naught there at Lords in 2021 when India did them. And again at the Oval, he was out for two when they lost that game in the same series. Australia in the Ashes at Adelaide in 2021, out for two. And the Wellington oh, yeah, game the in 2023, out for four. 
And then he's got his not outs in the fourth innings where he's made naught, four, four, one, naught, 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 four, four, naught, three, five. And he's got a couple of okay scores. The, 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 the only times he's made a handful of runs. New Zealand, Leeds 2015, he made eight not out when he was in the last pair. Australia, Adelaide 2013, the Mitchell Johnson series again. He was 13 not out, whacked a couple of boundaries um, by the time... Stuart Broad would have been the other one. I'm pretty sure I remember him getting out on the last day. I reckon they came back. Did they come back on the fifth morning for yep. like two overs? No, longer than that. I think they came back for about um, 13 Adelaide. I reckon they were back for a session on the final day. Ian Bell batted well, didn't he? Made 80 odd. He batted well in the first innings, though. I thought it was um, the second innings where uh, was, he made, someone he made certainly. 70, yeah, someone certainly Bell, batted Bell commendably. Makes 70. 71, I'm going to say 71, tell me if I'm wrong, if somebody can be bothered looking this up. He plays the uppercut really nicely off Johnson, but that's in the first innings. I can't quite remember what happens in the second innings. Um, are, you, are you just filtering here for times that England have lost the game in the fourth innings, or are you, is this every time he's batted yeah. in the fourth inning? No, this is England lost Losing. fourth innings, and right. he's been involved in the 10th wicket partnership. Yeah, because there are others, famously, I mean, the card of 2009, but also betting with Graham Onions in, in yeah, Centurion they, in 2009. That. That's what I mean. Like, there are, you know, where hmm. he's, it, uh, the point I'm making is that he's had a really wild and varied time betting at the end of test matches. Oh, so, yeah. Sydney 2022 as well, betting with Stuart Broad, facing that, that maiden That's from Steve Smith yep. at the end. Unbelievable in hindsight that of all the people, elected to bowl that last over, it was Steve Smith, but I guess um, mm. the fading of the light might have played a role in that. And then my, I think my favourite one that I didn't mention before is that 2018 at Trent Bridge against India, he's out. He's the last oh, man yeah. out to lose the game in the fourth innings. He, he makes 11 that day, which is pretty good um, by the standards of, of his fourth innings, and he gets out to Ashwin bowling a leg break. <laughs> You remember this? Well, I, I remember it well. I, I remember it for a few reasons. Well, first of all, it was one of three times in that calendar year when I was still a hustling, bustling freelancer writing newspaper articles. I still am, but, you know, when I was writing more, it was one of three instances. Mm. Centurion, uh, no, Centurion, my apologies, uh, Durban, uh, Trent Bridge and Melbourne in 2018. Test matches just yep. just edged into the final day with one wicket to get or a couple of runs. That no, was one wicket to get on all three. And um, we came back for about seven balls on day five when Ashwin gets Anderson, which um, right. meant for a great night on the tiles on night four in Nottingham. Then we all jumped in the car and drove up to yep. Edinburgh for the uh, for a few nights at the Fringe. So good memories. But yeah, it was a leg break to get Anderson at the end and finish things off. Yeah. So, so th- those are all the ones that he's lost. I'm um, just going to see if I can skim for any that he's won. 2012 West Indies at Lords. Is he batting with Alistair Cook? No, he must have come up at the order as a night watchman at that point. Mm. So it looks like it looks like James Anderson has only ever once batted in the fourth innings of a test win, and that's when he batted at first drop as a night watchman and made six. Okay. So he's never... So he's had he's had these. What does this equal? Thirty nine, thirty nine losses. Is that right? Yeah, eleven plus twenty eight. So thirty nine uh, losses when he's been at the crease at the end of either the third or the fourth innings, but the final innings of the match when England have lost, he's been out there thirty nine times. He's been out twenty of those times, and he's been not out nineteen of those times, and he's never been there when they've won. He's never tasted of all of the, what, 186 tests or whatever it is that he's played. He's never sc- scored the winning run or been there while someone else scored the winning run. 
at nine down. That's beautifully set up for Anderson to do just that at Radcliffe next week. Now you've uh, framed it up that way. I'm sure he'll be playing. <laughs> Congratulations on the birth uh, of your child, David Nichols. Two twenty nine. Get your nerd pledges in at patreon.com forward slash the final word. Join our Discord page. Always lots of activity going on there, and we'll talk more about the marathon that we're running collectively. Collectively? Together. Together. Later in the show. Time for some more cricket. Let's go back to that first one-day international or the one-day internationals between Australia and the Windies, three of them. Australia won the first part, eight wickets at the MCG. Windies made 231. Casey Carney was run out for 88. Mad run out. Abbott threw the stumps down. Burnt there. But the real Mm. story in that first innings of the first match was – Xavier Bartlett, who just looked absolutely sensational. I mean, the way he swung the ball around corners, couldn't hit him off the square. Four for 17 from nine, the best figures for Australia on one day international debut since Tony Dodder made. That's back in 1985, I'm pretty yep. sure, Dodders. Australia get it two down. Smith, 79, not out. A green, a slow, 77, not out. Green, who, by the way, is um, not playing the white ball stuff in New Zealand. He's going back to the Shield, which I think is a good idea. And they probably mm. could have played Matt Short or um, further up the list or given Fraser McGurk a go in that chase, but not to be. And after head missed out, he left the squad. He's having a bit of R&R at the moment. Inglis made 65 mm. before he was out reverse sweeping. And all told, Jeff, it was um, a story of Bartlett for Australia, which was the headline that uh, Louis Cameron cleverly put up on cricket.com.au, which was, was um, a reference, not a direct reference, but in part uh, a reference to our Maxwell for Australia shirts, which of course is derived from the the Bartlett for America uh, slogan in the West Wing all those years mm. ago. Surely, yeah, surely there was a little bit of influence rubbing off there. Enjoyed that, and why not? I, I, yeah, I mean, it's hard not to like the look of Bartlett. He's massive, he's tall, he makes the ball do plenty. His opening spell looked terrific. He's got big chompers, you know, looks like he could sort of bite his way through a padlock if you needed to to unlock your bike or something like that. Why not? It's 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 fun when players from the next tier down come on up. And speaking of that, I mean, Sean Abbott, Sean Abbott's like the guy who's who's playing for the first, but his game gets rained off and he drops down to the thirds. Like every, t- every time he pops into the Australian team, he seems to excel. He's just not there very much because, you know, he, he spent that entire World Cup on the fringes, got one token game against Bangladesh after they'd already qualified. But what he did and, and you know, more coming up to his batting in the next series and his fielding, the runouts, the catches, um, he's – it's like he's too good to be the reserve but he just somehow can't get himself a regular starting spot. I think it was Dan Cherney who wrote a piece that was headlined Australia's Lost Generation and what he meant was the contention of the piece is that Australia have been blessed with the triumvirate of Stark, Hazel mm. and Cummins who've been – you know, two of the three of them or all three of them have been playing so much cricket together across the formats for so long that the supporting cast have been starved of opportunities for like a decade. Mm. And there are players, I mean, Abbott's one of them, but he's not the only one. And Bartlett might become part of that crew, you know, because you would say that Bartlett now has pushed himself up the pecking order, but will he be playing at the World Cup later this year in the T20 format? Probably not, because Jason Berendorf was the T20 player of the year. He'll be there with Stark, Cummins, Hazelwood, because they're always there in the major tournaments. They like their, you know, that... They like the big bodies, if you like, the experience, muscle memory mm. in games that have a lot riding on them. So 
Yeah, but Bartlett, the way that he was able to swing the ball, that first wicket, his second ball in international cricket, was the stuff you absolutely dream of, you know, an outswinging Yorker pretty much a hit off stump. It's just like the perfect ball to bowl. So he's got a high skill level and he took a bunch of wickets in the third game as well, which we'll come to in a sec. He was rested for the second one. They're still managing a small back complaint that he's got from domestic cricket earlier in the summer. But yeah, Australia beat West Indies comfortably there as well by 83 runs, but they were hard held. They were 91 for five at one stage, made it to 258 for nine. Fraser McGurk made his debut, hit a six and got out, made 10, but had everybody purring. Uh, Ricky Ponting. Um, Intent. Think, yeah, Ricky, Intent. Ricky Ponting. That's what we're here for. That's what we want to see. Uh, upon him being selected, Ricky Ponting said that he thinks that Fraser McGurk will play test cricket, which is great. Like, I just hope they don't botch it the way they, I would argue, have botched the Maxwell test career or what could have been the Maxwell test career. There's no argument. Well some, some would say, well, some would say that- They've wasted a talent. Yeah, well, yeah. you and I share that. The others would say that Maxwell has been down the list of, uh, down the pecking order and, and they've done pretty well without him, but I think they could have, um, the ceiling would have been higher for that yeah. Australian team had Maxwell been batting at six for the last 10 years. I would just say there is there are some there are there is a, a reasonable number of comparatively like objectively good players, but comparatively dog shit cricketers who have played ahead of him over that period of time. Yeah. So Sean Abbott, we mentioned before with the ball he, uh, in the field. Sorry, in this game at Sydney, he smacked sixty nine down the list with four sixes. So a reminder of that all round worth. Then picks up you know three for forty to bowl out the Windies for one seventy five. Hazelwood who was back for his hometown game. I like how they did that with Hazelwood. They're like, uh, you're in Sydney. Do you want to play on Sunday? So Hazelwood took three for as well. He's not going to travel, of course. It's Josh Hazelwood. And Will Sutherland made his debut. He was added to the squad before the series began. Took two for 28. I reckon, Jeff, that we will talk of the uh, uh, the Sutherland-Fraser-McGurk debut day in a mm. similar way to how he did the Pattinson-Stark-Warner debut. I think these two guys are going to play a shitload of international cricket together and they've you know both done it for the first time in the same game which is a little bit unusual because they tend to to space out the debuts in white ball cricket so um yeah just a, a marker for the future there with those two Sutherland getting in the book and then Fraser McGurk got a chance to really excel in in the third game albeit a quick one where Australia bowled out the Windies for just 86 in 24 overs they were 71 for four then they lost six for 15 Bartlett Another four for, four for 21. So what a great start to his career. Four for 15, then four for 21 after returning mm. from that rest. Lance Morris, who, Jeff, you saw him bowl in the flesh, took some tap at Melbourne, went at roughly a runner ball, took two for 13 at Canberra. What were yeah. your first impressions of Morris watching him up, up close? Well, I mean, I think he's, he had a terrific big bash season and he's got that, he's got that problem that, really express bowlers can have in the shortest formats, which is that they can bowl really well and still go for plenty. Like you can bowl a nasty bouncer that gets up over the front shoulder, you know, sort of angles across someone towards the line of leg stump and makes them flinch away from the ball and they still get a top edge and it goes for four over the keeper. So you you can bowl great deliveries as an express bowler in limited overs cricket and still go for boundaries. I mean, you used to see it happen to Dale Stain a lot. He did bowl a 147 kph back of a length out swinger and somebody had flashed it off the edge you know through deep third going fine for four there there's this frustration of um sometimes of bowling quick but then at other times he was able to absolutely shut players up because they just weren't sure what to do against the pace so there's that risk you used to see it with brett lee quite a bit as well um that there would be there would be games where he'd go for absolutely heaps because it just didn't work that day and there's not really anything you can do against it you can't you can't 
train more or, or find ways around it. It's just whether the luck is going to go with you that day or not. So he was more frugal in that route at Canberra's first international wickets, two for 13 for Morris. Zampa was in the side as well, picked up a couple. And then Australia chased 87 in just 6.5 overs. So a one-day international all wrapped up in 31 overs. I'm not sure where that sits in terms of the quickest one-dayers, but it must be quite close to the top of that list. Fraser McGurk, 41 from 18 with three sixes, just hits the ball so hard. Josh Inglis, who's been opening in the series, interesting. Uh, you know, he batted pretty well in the middle order during the World Cup. Got a World Cup winner's medal. Um, 35 not out it's from the 16. It's the law. He, he's a wicketkeeper. <laughs> and, you know, since 1997, wicketkeepers have to open the batting yeah. in one-day cricket in Australia. It doesn't matter who you are. You've got to do it. They, they did try it with Kerry for a while, didn't they? Didn't, didn't quite land. But Inglis, good start. 65 at Melbourne. Everybody. Brad Haddon did it. Yeah. <laughs> um, Graham Manu probably had a go at one point. Mm, uh, mm. Yeah, it's just compulsory. So Australia, after destroying the Windies there, um, complete a 12th one-day international victory on the trot, which, of course, includes the, the back end of the World Cup where they held the trophy up at Ahmedabad. Very different side that, that, that turned out in India, but still under Steve Smith's captaincy. The good times roll there. They've got the T20s to come in Hobart, Adelaide, Perth on Friday, Sunday, Tuesday. The T20 squad... For New Zealand's very different. That's quite full strength energy. And you get it, right? Like, you know, they're they're trying to get as many of those first choice players on the field as they can. With the T20 World Cup only four and a half months away. Um, the final T20, though, is on the 25th of Feb and the test match is on the 29th of Feb. So that's a even by like modern standards, that's a pretty um, a pretty sharp turnaround for the guys that play that that last T20. So they might like structure it in a way that like, you know, the big dogs don't play the last game or something like that. At least it's in the same country. Yep. So yep. there's been, that. It's been have to, you know, play it in New Zealand and then fly to South Africa like 2018. Uh, Jeff, before we go to our next break, just the Australian Cricket Awards that were just after we recorded yes. last week. We we um we missed the missed the read on this. How I wholesome. We, 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 we both went, oh, yeah, Pat Cummins will win that, surely, the AB medal. And there you go. Mitch Marsh won it by a fucking oh, mile. Oh, came second. Um, Mitch Marsh won it. And, and, you, and you, you look at the voting system and it makes sense because he played so many of the white ball games that Cummins was rested for. But, yeah, Mitch Marsh yep. wins the medal. Having come from where he's come from, the, you know, I'm a bit fat and love a beer line that'll – Little little rattle around um, forever for him, uh, and how much gratitude there was. Uh, talking about everyone who was there for him when the times were tough. Talking emotionally about his family, breaking down and crying about the influence of Pat Cummins and Andrew McDonald. Um, you know, people can criticise the Australian team. There, that's fine. That's that's your prerogative and. You cannot like Pat Cummins because he thinks climate change is real or you might think Andrew McDonald's boring or whatever. Hear from Mitch Marsh, he's just won, you know, the, the best and fairest for the team for the 12-month period and breaking down in tears about what an influence that Cummins and McDonald have had. That's a, that's a story about their, their leadership qualities and about their instincts with Marsh. And, yeah, I mean, as we've said many, many times yeah. and everybody knows what a, what a fabulous fellow Marsh is and you can't help but be happy for him. And, and I think that they've, they've got it right. They've got things right vastly more often than not over the last couple of years. There's been so much conjecture about picks. There was conjecture when when Marsh was kept in the team after he came back in, uh, whether he should have even been in the Ashes squad or the rest of it. You know, we've questioned things. Other people have questioned things. The Smith opening in Green 4 is the latest thing. People are getting absolutely up to the elbows into the current administration for making those choices. But they've got most things right you know they've got their selections right far more often than not and that's borne out in the results over the last little while and and to take a player who was 
who was such a flaky player and was such a bit part player, you know, I mean, we've, we've talked about this before, but remember that point in 2017, is it when Mitchell Marsh is literally the worst performing, statistically worst number six batter in the history of test cricket, you know, with a qualification of however many innings it was. Nobody had batted as many times in that position and made as few runs on average. So the fact that he's been able to turn himself into, you know, he was the most important player in the Pakistan series. He turned around two absolutely dire positions and and made runs in the first test as well in Perth when they were in a stronger position but still needed them. You know, they sweep that series because of him and if he's not there, then potentially they lose that series 2-1. That's what you've got, you know, as well as a player who sets up what should have been a win at Leeds that ends up being a, a very close loss. And um, if, if if others had gone with him at that point, Australia sealed the ashes there, 3-0 straight sets. So that's the kind of player you've got at the moment, what he did during the World Cup as well. It's an extraordinary renaissance um, and, and it's, it's, it's great to see him reaching that full potential. Played a big role in saving the test at Old Trafford as well. He and Marta Slavashane on that fourth afternoon proved to be the last afternoon. But, you know, they break up that Marsh-Labashane partnership straight away after the rain and, and England probably win that test match. I would, I think it's reasonable to, to say with the benefit of hindsight. Yeah, well, certainly a strong chance. Yeah. And, and look, yeah, the, the Marsh story, I think that he's been able to now express how he feels about that earlier part of his career, that he, that he didn't play the way that was natural to him, that he felt like he had to conform to a certain way and most of the time it just didn't work for him and now that he's liberated to play the way that he plays at his best yeah. and, and there's a, a degree of latitude provided to him in doing so at number six, he's not batting in the top four. And as for the decision-making of the leadership group and the Smith decision recently and so on, I recall when the decision was made, this is a bit of a, a, a bit of a stretch, but work with me here. The decision was made to take away um, the rights of the caucus to vote for the party leader in the Parliamentary Labor Party that got moved to the party membership. And I remember an MP saying to me, well, Martin Pacullo, who was, um, went on to become the sports minister in Victoria, tweeting about it, saying that, that it was a terrible decision because who do you trust to make a decision on the person who is leading the organisation, the people who work with them and see them every single day or people that have no relationship to them whatsoever. Well, so it goes for making decisions in a cricket team. Who's got a better handle on what Steve Smith's more capable of doing? The guys who are in the dressing room with him every day and who are working with him as colleagues or all of us in the cheap seats. Of course, they've got a better sense of what's happening there and and I think that sometimes that gets lost a little bit because we're all, you know, amateur selectors at the end of the day, but um, the blow up over Smith yeah. the other week and we're all entitled to an opinion, but I think the opinion of those who are closer to the closer to the flame, um, deservedly, uh, it should be seen as having uh, more authority. And, you know, these big calls, these big strategic calls recently that have been made by Cummins and McDonald's, most of them have broken Australia's way because they're good at their jobs. I think you can also argue that being too close to things can be detrimental as well and, and that in that sort of parliamentary analogy um, it's about who's electable and therefore it's the, the opinion of the public matters more than the people who are, who are up close. But you can only go on what the successes and failures have been. And in this instance, we've got the current administration has a long list of successes and, and a short list of failures. The, the other awards from the night, the Belinda Clark Award, so the women's equivalent of the AB medal, which got brought in about 10 years ago now or thereabouts. Ash Gardner won that over Elise Perry. So it kind of reinforces Ash Gardner's status as the number one player in Australian women's cricket. That's mm-hmm. skewed by the 12 wickets she took in the test match and they, there's more points allocated to that form mm. of the game, but all the money. I, I think Beth Mooney is still the more important, the most important player in that team. But 
Gardner has both strings to her bow. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's it, isn't it? When you're not, you're able to gather votes with your other discipline, as Gardner did with the ball. Even though she mentioned earlier in the show, she batted eight tonight in the one day, which seems odd. Uh, nevertheless, um, the Shane Warne medal for. Um, the best test player went to Nathan Lyon. Not to Usman Khawaja, interestingly. You know, like Cummins was the international- ICC test player yeah. of the year. Well, Cummins was player of the year. He won the Garfield Sobers medal and Marsh wins the AB and Khawaja mm. wins the test player. Uh, sorry, a test player of the year for the ICC. The ICC but, test player. But, yeah. but Nathan Lyon, so that's, I guess, a bit of a quirk of, of the voting system. But Nathan Lyon, uh, typically gracious there and spoke lovingly of Shane Warne, the one-day player, Mitch Marsh, the T20 player, Jason Berendorf, the domestic player, Cameron Bancroft. The young player of the year was Rock. Fergus O'Neill, which was interesting to me that, mm-hmm. um, you know, that this is a guy, we're going to talk about him a bit later in the show in reference to the most recently completed Shield round. But, you know, a guy, yeah. who, a guy who is more in the, in, from a pace perspective in the mould of like Chad Sayers and he's cleaning up and he's, um, and he's now winning awards. Yep. I mean, he's bigger than Chad Sayers, but like, that's where we think he probably hits on the on the speed radar. So that, yeah. that's a that's a fairly he's got significant. About what's he got? About sixty wickets at eighteen or something. He's got an incredible start to his career. That's for sure. And the women's domestic players of the year were Elise Falani, your old fave, Jeff, and she was the joint winner with Sophie Day. So Elise Falani <laughs> still doing great things now, playing for Tasmania. And that was the um, the the Australian Cricket Awards, the annual event, which. Um, Yes, it's a nice thing, a nice thing to cap the uh, Australian International Summer, even though there's still more to come with the women playing a, a test match and uh, more against South Africa and the men are off to New Zealand. But that's the, the point in the calendar where they have drawn the line. Time for a break and then we're going to look at a little bit of test cricket from elsewhere and uh, some shield and... Lots more. Uh, might just get us <laughs> towards the end of the show. <laughs> Hi, I'm Brian Ruddle. You're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. Final Word, Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. We haven't done a long weekly show in a while, but I get the feeling today's going to be one of those, such as the um, such was the, the playing calendar. New Zealand, South Africa, the first test that we were pretty focused on owing to the squad that South Africa picked for it. Now, the interesting news coming into this, uh, the Tanguai Shield is what they've um, named this uh, series now commemorating the rail disaster in 1953. That's very special. I mean, we've we've talked about this on Storytime before. Yeah, commemoration 70 years on, 151 people died in that rail tragedy, including Narissa Love, who was the fiance of Bob Blair, who was playing in that test match at that time when it happened on Christmas Eve uh, in Johannesburg, New Zealand against South Africa in 1953. And, you know, as the story goes, Bob Blair, who's now in his 90s living in Sunderland, by the way, I would love to get him on the final word, somehow managed to continue playing in that test match despite the profound tragedy of losing his fiancée. But, yeah, that was a, I think that was a lovely touch from administrators to, to recognise that tragedy by um, naming the shield after the place where the um the crash happened mm-hmm. yeah um and it, it was i mean it it adds a different layer of significance right it's not just a trophy that's got a couple of former players names on it and a little bit of bronze whatever it's beautiful the trophies are yeah. beautiful sort of artwork in its own right and it, it's connecting something more more significant um, in the history of these teams, something that bonds South Africa and New Zealand in Test cricket more significantly. And you know, if only it, it were it were being played for in a properly competitive series, because this went the way that we expected it would. Um, New Zealand make five hundred and eleven. 
um, Ruchin Ravindra makes a double hundred, Kane Williamson makes a ton and then adds another one in his second innings, so twin hundreds in the game for him. You know, there, there were lots of quirks and interesting bits in this game, but it wasn't competitive. Tashepa Morecki does an Arthur Conningham, <laughs> someone we've talked about on Storytime in the last few weeks, a wicket with his first ball in Test cricket. So that list of players is 24 long. Now he got Devin Conway first ball and, and they got Tom Latham soon after that. But, you know, then it was um, Williamson and Ravindra just powered on for hundreds and hundreds of runs and, and ended up pushing them to that 511 score. So Kane Williamson, that's his 30th century, the one in the first innings. Spoiler, spoiler, yeah, there's, there's one in the second as well, twin tons. But uh, 30th century in his 97th match, just by way of comparison. So he's got 31, you know, uh, by the end of 97. Smith is known as a ton machine. He's got 32 in 107 test matches. And for Williamson, he's now got six centuries in his last six test matches. And I know he doesn't play a lot these days. He's seemingly always out with an injury and Tom Latham captains the New Zealand side uh, as much, if not more, than Williamson in the test format. And, of course, Tim Southey now leading the white ball teams and so on. And Tim Southey's been in charge of the test side too. Like they've had a variety of different leaders in in recent years, but um, Williamson, the batter, remains the well, he's the greatest to ever do it for New Zealand and finished with 118 here. Avindra moved on to 240 by the time he was done on that second day. So it's not the it's not the highest score for a maiden ton. Um, that's Bobby Simpson's 309 and uh, just the tip got 287. They're both... Uh, no, Tip was on debut. Bobby Simpson played tip a lot of test cricket. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure where 240 sits in it, but it's a... It's a it's a pretty high number. And to think that he wasn't in that New Zealand test side at different points until uh, about, well, he didn't play in Bangladesh, did he? He didn't play in that Bangladesh series before Christmas. Uh, I'm pretty sure he he didn't make that that side. So where he should be, Ratchan Ravindra um, in the top six for New Zealand. And may he have a long and productive test career. And then Neil Brand, this is the interesting bit, the curiosity, the captain of South Africa on debut. That's, you know, an odd thing to happen as well. And an opening bat who didn't make any runs but did end up taking six for So he bowls sort of left-arm orthodox, bowled a few good deliveries in there as well, you've got to say, but basically brought himself on to bowl to spare the rest of his team after New Zealand had already were already well in the process of racking up a massive score. And he was, he was just throwing himself on the grenade basically. And he was, you know, they were scoring off him at a pretty good lick. But this this section of play, Adam, was fascinating. So it's the 122nd over of the match. Um, he's got Daryl Mitchell who smokes a ball back at him and Brand takes the court and bowled. He's got one for 49 at this point. And Tom Blundell gets out a couple of overs later, not to Brand, but to a different bowler, to DeSwart. And then Neil Brand continues bowling. Ratchin Ravindra smacks him for a six. I think he goes for eight off that over. The next over goes for 11. Neil Brand goes for 14 off his next over, which includes two more sixes. The next over that he's not bowling goes for 12. The next Brand over goes for 10, Plus he gets the wicket of Glenn Phillips, who bangs one down the ground and gets caught. And the next over he gets Ravindra bold, I think, um, has a big slog ratchet and, and he's out for 240. And at this point, Neil Brand's got three for 97. And you can imagine that he suddenly goes, hang on a minute, <laughs> I could get a five for here. <laughs> I'm just going to leave myself on. Yeah. So he does. The next over he picks up Santner, four for 107 for Brand at that point. That's the fifth ball of the over. Matt Henry whacks the last ball of the over for six because, of course, he does because he's Matt Henry. 
The next over that that uh, the brand's not bowling, they take 14 off it, just slogging everything. And then Matt Henry's facing Brand again. He hits two more sixes in three balls and then holes out <laughs> to, to, to be the fifth wicket, um, having already taken a dozen off the over. And then Tim Southey smacks one up in the air and he's out in the same over, which goes for 12 runs and takes two wickets. So Brand suddenly has six for 119 and New Zealand have scored 112 in 14 <laughs> overs while losing five wickets. Wow. It was absolute madness. Carnage. It was carnage. Love it. And Brand ends up with six for at the end of it, and he's like, Jesus, I, I didn't think I was here for my bowling. A lot of fivers on there, but I don't imagine there are a lot of sixers at the first time of asking mm. in Test cricket. One for the one for the final nerds there. I mean, it only got worse for South Africa too, didn't it? So after being clobbered well, for I'll, 112 <laughs> in 14 overs, their rolls were 162 the first time around. I'll, I'll throw in one other thing. Brand does have to bowl again briefly when New Zealand sets some declaration runs and he picks up two more and he makes no runs in the second innings. Yeah. So he takes eight wickets and he makes seven runs. And this question was put in our Discord channel. Have there been any opening batters who have taken that many wickets and made fewer runs in a test match. And I have answered that question and it's going to be on story time on the weekend. Ah. So I will tell you the story of the answer to that question on our next episode. Beautifully done. Nice segue. So yeah, South Africa bundled out for 162, just outclassed. Keegan Peterson, uh, who was playing for Durham the last time I saw him play, made 45 and top scored. Hot Matt Henry Summer picked up three. Mitchell Sartner, three for 34 from 21. Um, by all reports, bowled magnificently. Cole Jameson, a couple. Ravindra, a couple as well to chip in. Huge lead. But with back-to-back test matches, they batted again rather than enforcing the follow-on. They batted for 43 overs to take, them, take themselves to the end of day three. Made 179 for four, which was sufficient time for Kane Williamson to do, as he always does, and make another century. 109 uh, Williamson finished with to complete twin tons. He's the fifth New Zealander to hit twin tons in a test match. That list includes two-metre Peter Fulton, which I wasn't expecting. He made twin centuries against England uh, in 2013. But, yeah, they set South Africa 529, uh, and they were all out for 247 in an even 80 overs. Good on David Bettingham, another player who's played for Durham, making 87 after getting a good start in the first innings as well. Brand missed out, as you say, in both innings with the bat, but eight wickets with the ball. As for Carl Jamieson, he t- takes four for 58 to make six for the match. Bit of a forgotten man for the Black Caps, Jamieson, since he picked up that injury at Nottingham in 2022. But you look at his overall numbers, 80 test wickets at 19, and he was the player of the final in the World Test Championship final in, in 2021. So at age 28, still plenty more cricket to come for the the big blonde Adonis. Um, if you can be a blonde Adonis, I, I don't, do, uh, do Adonis have blonde can. hair? I suppose you can. I don't really know what Adonis looks like. What was, I'm thinking um, more, yeah. I guess, what are the famous physical characteristics of Adonis? I, I guess I'm just sort of, um, I'm, um, I'm, I'm stereotyping what he might look like with a shock of black hair. But maybe right. that's wrong. Uh, starting to three more wickets. Uh, anyway, we're off to the Tron. Seddon Park for the second test that begins on the 13th of February and then the two against Australia, which we rock up for a few mm-hmm. days after that. Uh, Jeff, that's international cricket done for now at least. As I said, busy show. That's international cricket. Sheffield yep. Shield. The Shield. Sheffield Shield. What a week of, what, what a week of games. This is interesting. This is interesting because Victoria had a terrible start to the season, but they're, they're in the hunt 
now because Western Australia got knocked off mm. by New South Wales, the most busted-ass team in the country who couldn't win a game for years, New South Wales. They're suddenly, um, they've, they've been making winning a habit. And this was, this was good. So WA 256... New South Wales 251, nice and even on the first inning. Sam Whiteman makes 107 for WA. Moses Enriques makes 95 for New South Wales. And and yes, we'll I'm sure we'll talk about the uh, obstructing the field thing in in a moment. But but it was like nice and even on the first innings, and then gradually ends up going New South Wales way. They end up winning by four wickets. But well, yeah, there was a there was a fair bit of conversation to be had out of a. A little incident in the middle. Well, they win by four wickets, New South Wales. So they're, they're even on points with WA, um, which I was staggered to read. So WA a third and New South Wales a fourth now um, with, um, you know, that was set 182 New South Wales and got it six down after a 101 run stand for the second wicket between uh, Blake Nikitaris and Daniel Hughes, who both got 50s. And yeah, WA drop out of the top two, which is significant. They've been in the top two for like the last seven years. I don't think they've barely been out of um, shield final positions. But, yeah, they've been overtaken by Victoria, as you say. But, yeah, the main news line coming out of it, Chris Green picked up a six for, given he only made his first-class debut after like a million T20 games last year. Mm. The very fact that he's in the New South Wales State first-class team is, is noteworthy. But, yeah, six for 83. So he's in and around it. You know, he's not a million miles away from the Australian squad, I don't think. But the 19 runs he made from a million balls in the first innings included a moment. So he was facing Charlie Stobo, and in his follow-through, Stobo picked it up and threw it back towards the stumps. Green was between the stumps and the ball, and as it came towards his leg, he decided to defend it. Now, they appealed the West Australians for obstructing the field, not unreasonably, given that Green was out of his crease. He was given not out. This happened on the very same day, and I'm going to put these two things together. In the under-19s World Cup between England and Zimbabwe, we saw an incident involving Hamza Sheikh, who uh, who was batting, and a ball went in front of him, and the ball was stopped dead after defending it, and he picked it up and he threw it to the guy's short leg, right? Wicked keeper. Passed it to the wicketkeeper. Uh, sorry, through the sorry, that's right. Sorry, through to the wicketkeeper. That's right. Zimbabwe, led by their captain Matthew Shonkin, was having none of it. They appealed, the and it was and it was given out. Yeah, right. So we've had two appeals for obstructing the field: one given not out, and one given out. Now, in the 19s World Cup, it didn't have a major effect. England won anyway. Uh, sure. Sheikh's teammate from Warwickshire, Tazim Chowdhury, took seven for 29. He's a fucking gun, by the way, this leg spinner from Warwickshire. Mm. He's 17 and spins it a mile both ways. You'll see him again soon. But it went around the world, as these things tend to do. Yeah, it's, it, uh, so I've spoken to the MCC. I've got the official read on it. My, I mean, my instinct is, fuck, you know, if you're the fielding team, don't appeal for that because, you know, that's quite common for a batter to pick the ball up. But then I've thought mm. about it some more and, and read about it some more. Then what if they're trying to get that ball to reverse? What if exactly. they're trying to, you know, what, what if they're trying to get that ball to exactly. stay dry? That, a that sweaty is what, batting glove on top is, of it. That is what I come to every single time because you you have a you've got a bowling side where they won't let certain members of their own team touch the ball because their hands yeah. are too sweaty. You've got bowling sides that work so carefully on that ball management to try to get it to do what they need it to do, and you can affect that as a batter. Yeah, you you plonk the palm of your glove on the wrong side of the ball, and oh well, it's not going to reverse for the next ten overs. And that's not to say that any that the batter doing it has nefarious intent, 
but but they could that could that could be a knock on that could be a yeah that could be an inadvertent effect. I think it is so simple. It is so easy and. Yes, you can say it's polite and you're being helpful, but you never, ever need to pick up the ball. I don't pick up the ball in pub cricket. You don't do it. It's not your ball. The ball belongs to the fielding team. Let them field the ball. And I just, I do not understand it at any level of cricket. Like, you will see guys in fifth grade cricket getting bollocked for picking up the ball. Leave, fucking leave it alone. It's not yours. And that's correct. It's not your ball. The field belongs to the fielding team. The fielding captain gets to decide who goes on and off, if you can have a break for a glass of water, if you can have a runner. All of those things go through the fielding captain. When you are fielding, the arena is yours and the batters are your guests on the wicket. They do not have the right to touch the ball. That's just it. Like, I don't think, I can't see how it's complicated at all. Don't pick it up, walk away, let someone else do it. All of that's spot on. I mean, yeah. Watch a million years of cricket. Yeah, million million years. You watch years and years of cricket, and and you don't want it to be given out because you're like, it's just, it just doesn't feel right. And I get why people sure. feel that way. But everything you say is correct. And a little bit like running out the non-striker. When you see these types, of, and I don't know why there are more obstructing the field appeals at the moment. Maybe it's because handled the ball's been folded into that law. People are talking about it more. Maybe it's partly informed by running out the non-striker. People are paying a bit more attention to modes of dismissal that weren't as relevant or prevalent before. But, I mean, that's, what's that horrible Mao quote, you know, shoot one, educate a thousand? Like, you know, I, I think there might be a bit of this going on, right? Like, you know, this young fella, Shake, has fallen victim to this and you will not He's see- not pick the ball up again, is he? Nor will anyone. Nor will anyone. It's very same with backing up. I don't know how closely you've been paying attention to this in the England-India series, but whenever Ashwin's bowling, the Indian players are, well, it's probably every bowler, but especially with Ashwin, they're very mindful they could be dismissed that way. And that's good. That's good. That's good practice. It's good form to back up in a way that keeps you back behind the line before the ball's let go. And you're taking a risk to leave before that, as we know, and there's a reason for that. And it's now going to be, whether it's pub cricket, like you described before, all the way through to playing a test match, you will know that if you pick up the ball after it falls into the offside or the onside or in front of you on the pitch, if the fielding side appeal, you will be given out um, unless they withdraw the appeal. So just for what it's worth, the reason why um, the other dismissal was given not out was that in the law, the batter is entitled to defend themselves. Now, the way it was explained to me was that had Green been five metres out of his crease... There might have been a, a dimmer interpretation. There is a grey area there. There is. It's a sure. matter of interpretation. We've seen one of these at Lords where Ben Stokes said yep. that he was defending himself in 2015 in that one day when Stark threw the ball back. The fact that Stokes was so far out of his ground and the ball was training towards the stumps it made it look guilty, and thus why he was given out by yep. the third umpire. But also that he he was the Stokes one is is was much further outside the line of his body, and so he sure it, it was instinctive. But he followed the ball with his glove. He went after it and he ended up reaching a full arm's width, really. Like, a, from my memory, it might not have been this far, but it, it was like a metre or so that he stretches his arm out to get his glove in the way of that ball. And, yeah, it was probably impulsive, but it, was, it wasn't it was protecting, it wasn't sort of in the line of his body. The Chris Green one yeah. I didn't have a problem with because, yeah, he, he moves ever so slightly. He shuffles a little bit to his left. He sort of turns his body and reaches the bat. But that ball is being thrown at him from about 10 yards because the bowler's come halfway down the pitch in his follow-through, grabbed it, side-armed it back at him, and it's probably going to hit his pads or his foot. Yeah, it's yeah. Pro- and it might miss them and it might hit the stumps and it might ricochet onto them, but basically all 
he's got is a split second of seeing a six foot six fast bowler pick the ball up and ping it at him, and it's coming vaguely towards his legs, and so he's. I think it's an impulsive move as well, just to put the bat in the way and stop it hitting his pads. Um, and and there was people getting very angry about this and saying, oh, well, he's, he's clearly um, made a decision to try to protect his stumps. I don't think he's had time to make a decision about anything. He's just been aware of the ball being thrown at him hard and so he's put his bat in the way. Um, and so, yeah, if, if he'd moved half a metre across to do that, then it probably would have been out. But the fact that he was broadly... In the stance that he was, he shuffles slightly, but it's because the ball's probably going to hit him. And maybe it's not going to hit him. Maybe it's going to miss, but it's close enough that it's it's likely that it, it's a strong possibility that it'll hit him. And just because someone th- hurls the ball at you and you're wearing pads doesn't mean you have to let it hit your pads. When it might miss, it might hit the side, it might hit the side of your knee, it might get an unprotected area, whatever. You don't know what's going to happen because the ball's being pinged at you from 10 metres away. So I didn't see any issue with that really. My prediction is we're going to see far fewer of the shake style moments, and we're going to and the Mushfika one from December. There'll be bugger all of them, and there'll be more of the Chris Green ones where, yeah. um, where I just for whatever reason I think that'll be where the grey area lies, and thus we'll see more of that. Back to the Sheffield Shield. I mentioned the Vicks uh, leapfrogging WA, a three wicket win. So all three victories this week in the Shield round were like fourth innings chases going not quite down to the wire, but near enough to it to make it interesting. South Australia playing at the junction made 173, you know, the, the the standard practice for Victoria right now. Three for Perry, two for O'Neill, usual suspects. Then Xavier Crone, second game, took three for. He's a 26-year-old right arm medium pacer, so he played his role uh, in his first game this season. Boland uh, picked up a wicket as well, bowled 16.5 overs, then went off with a knee complaint. They've described it as being wear and tear and, and that kind of thing. Weird season for Boland, you know, tear. nationally contracted. played cricket. Yeah, well, well, yeah, that's it. Weird season. His fourth first-class game of the run. He spent a lot of time mixing drinks. You know, he's 34. He's kind of had half a season. I know he signed for a full season with Durham, so he, it's not like he's not going to play much cricket this year, but being out of the, out of the national side but in the 12 or in the 13 or whatever and has a national contract, he, he's still there and thereabouts. I mean, if, uh, if an Australian quick went down the day before the Wellington Test match, I expect Scott Boland would play. But, yeah, they've, they've managed him with Victoria um, along with Peter Siddle and, yeah, out after 16.5 overs, didn't take any further part in the game with the ball. Um, Victoria made 288 in reply. Maddinson, good story, Nick Maddinson. Did his knee last year, missed heaps of cricket, back in the Shield team and posted his 16th first-class century, made 104 to top score, Another interesting, weird career in a way. Like 10 years ago, Nick Maddinson was the next big thing, wasn't he? Went on that Australia A Tour in 2013, made a big 100 at Gloucestershire, I think it was from memory. Now, different part of his life. He's still 32. He's got time. Had that brief stint in the Aussie Test team, which feels a feels a, a generation ago. You know, that was when Darren Lehman was still coach in 2016-17. Like, they've, a lot's changed since he was in, in the dressing room, although he did play some T20s after Langer took over. But even that's five years ago. Um, but yeah, it's the only score above 50 to that point in the match at the junction, which means that it's a different kind of surface. But yeah, I was really happy to see that for Nick Maddinson, who is a guy who generates a lot of goodwill, clearly someone who thinks about things outside of cricket. He's got a lot of good friends who are very supportive of him and um, yeah, good to have him back. Yeah, slightly trickier junction oval, it looked like, than usual, where um, runs are usually the currency uh, down towards St Kilda. And then South Australia... All out 
for 271 half centuries for Hunt and Nielsen. But there goes Fergus O'Neill again, five for 47. Bradman Young Player of the Year also happens to be Rob O'Neill's dog, Fergus O'Neill. But uh, Fergus O'Neill the dog did not bowl in this game. Fergus O'Neill the cricketer did. Fair bit of attention on him. I think. What did I say? I think I said before he took sixty wickets at at, uh, at eighteen. Not quite. He took twenty eight at sixteen. But you know. Oh, that's um, just this year. That's that, that's, that's this season so far. Twenty eight yeah. at sixteen. So you might be right with the wider stats you read out before. It's I high fifties. It's thereabouts. Yeah. Yeah. It's a. It's a. You mentioned Rob O'Neill. I, w- I went to Lay Miz the other week and thought about Rob quite a bit, given your ongoing back and forth with him on story time. Um, <laughs> it's different seeing Lay Miz on the West End. It's yeah, fucking amazing. I, re- I recommend it. Um, yeah, at left left Victoria one fifty seven, and they got their seven down. It's far sketchier than the New South Wales chase at the Wacker. Nice that Sam Harper got thirty four not out to be there at the end from twenty eight balls to ice it after that horrible Nets injury last month, but. The fact that he's back in the team within a month is a great sign there. Cam Kellaway, that'll be great for his development, the teenager, there at the end as well with 35 not out. So Victoria are five points ahead of WA on 34, but three points clear of them in top spot, Tasmania. If Tasmania. of the season. They beat Queensland by four wickets at the Gabba. Remember we did the preview show for the season with Louis Cameron for the Shield season and the consensus from the three of us and you know, Louis explained this in, 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 in some detail, was that they'd been ravaged in the off-season, Tasmania, that is, and expectations were managed. But, um, yeah, they're having a belter so far. Well, I mean, they are in terms of, you know, what Gabe Bell was able to do, 10 wickets in the match there. Started off with four in the first inning, Stanlake four as well. But Queensland still made 282, pretty healthy score. Ben McDermott, 146, not out. So Queensland on top, you would expect. And and then more on top when Tasmania are, are out for 219. So that's a, a pretty significant lead in a four-day game. You know, nobody made more than 37 in the Tassie innings. And uh, the Stekosaurus, Mark Steckety, takes four wickets because he usually does take about four wickets. But then Queensland get absolutely the legs taken out from underneath them, 160 all out, of which Jack Clayton, 102. Almost, almost Bannerman territory, 63.75. We need, what, 67.35 to, to hit Bannerman territory? It was the inverse of the numbers. It was the, it oh. was the uh, yeah, yeah 63.75 instead of 67.35, which, which I, I was like quite that. taken by. We got quite a few messages in when he was batting saying, can he do it? Can he record the Bannerman? Not quite, but I know Jack Clayton, um, Clayton, sorry, is a guy who uh, has some raps, you know, left-hander, still in his early 20s, Adam White. Um, who we work quite a lot with, rates him big time. I've not seen him play a lot, but, you know, a ton there when they're getting rolled, um, that stands out to selectors. And you said Gabe Bell before, four in the first inning, six for 39 in the second for match figures of 10 for 79. He's got, I think, 32 wickets at 16 this season, Gabe Bell. So where they've had opportunities, these other seamers with Jackson Bird and Peter Siddle both going back to the mainland, um, a bowler like Gabe Bell has grasped it with both hands and, yeah, left Tassie only 228 to win. And uh, they've been pretty good chasers this year, Jeff, and they had a wobble. They were 13 for two, but they regrouped. The captain, Jordan Silk, 84 not out, was the backbone of the chase. And always special when you win a shield game at the Gabba. It used to be the hardest place to go to in, in domestic cricket. But uh, you would say that Tassie are now in in um, in the, uh, yeah, in, well, well, they should make the final from there. They're they're in the spot to host it. That'll be a novelty. First Shield final down at Belrave for, well, I guess it'll be more than a decade since um, that final that James Faulkner and Tim Payne won for the for the Tigers in 
Yeah, a couple, couple more wickets for Steckity, a um, couple for Sandu, Nisa only, one for 33 from the nine overs, so it, uh, it wasn't wasn't a hugely influential outing for Michael Nisa. And uh, oh, there was one more test match that we didn't mention as well because Sri Lanka knocked oh, off yeah. Afghanistan. This was quite an interesting one, actually, because Afghanistan were getting pumped. They were all out for 195. Ramat Shah made 91, but nobody else made many. And then 439 Sri Lanka make. Angelo Matthews, big 100. Chandamal makes 100. But then Afghanistan really, really dug in second time around. They regrouped the... It was the uncle-nephew duo, the, uh, the, the Zadran conglomerate opening the batting that uh, you know resisted for quite a long time and, and Ibrahim Zadran whose work we enjoyed so much at the 50 over World Cup makes a test ton here as well um, 22 years of age his first test ton after making Afghanistan's first World Cup 100 as well in the Australia game wasn't it the, the Glenn Maxwell game where Ibrahim Zadran well, it'll be one of the most forgotten hundreds of all time probably that he he um, notched Afghanistan's first 100 when they were setting 280-odd that Australia ended up running down in re- remarkable circumstances, but backed it up with a test 100 here. It only got them into a, a minor sort of lead. It was about 50, 56 that Sri Lanka needed to chase, but and they did that comfortably. But from the, the massive first innings deficit that they'd conceded, it was quite an effort from Afghanistan to even make Sri Lanka bat again and um, and of course Prabhath Jayasuriya picked up another five for in one of the innings he got three in the first innings I think and five in the second and it wasn't at goal he's done he's done most of his damage at goal Prabhath Jayasuriya but he actually had to play a game all the way in Colombo in a good couple of hours up the highway this time yeah, really happy for Ibi Zadran, that one fourteen you mentioned before, the 22-year-old. Yeah, he's only played 20 first-class games, you know, because there's not, not a lot of red ball cricket for Afghanistan, not having a, a mature first-class system and unable to play cricket in that country at all at the moment. But, um, yeah, the good news there is Afghanistan have another test coming up soon against Ireland. They've got a multi-format series against Ireland, actually, later this month, which is going to be played in the UAE. And, um, yeah, they played against each other in 2019. That was the test where Tim Murta did he make – Two fifties in that game. I feel like Tim Meadow made twin fifties. Um, anyway, Ireland have announced their mm. squad for that test. Andy Balburnie, who's given up the white ball captaincy, still leading Ireland in test cricket. So after Ireland played quite a few test matches last year, have their first of the year. And in a week of unusual dismissals that can't go unremarked upon that yep. Ange Matthews was out hit wicket to Kays Ahmed on debut, one of the worst balls you will ever see. It was like a long hop that was missing leg stump by about two feet and Matthews you know, put it away for four, but hit it so hard that his backswing went all the way around and hit the stumps and managed to um, uh, be dismissed that way. So Angelo Matthews now with 16 test hundreds, still going strong at age 36. Yeah, pretty good overall career record. You know, I mentioned Williamson and Smith earlier, but, you know, Ange Matthews averaging 46 mm. across 107 test matches going back to 2009. And we thought he was finished a few years ago, but the former captain's still going strong and now gets to register his name in, a, in an unusual column out hit wicket in a test match. Yeah, he does like an unusual dismissal, averaging one massive cracking of the shits <laughs> per World Cup tournament, I suppose. Prabhupada yeah. Jasuria, by the way, 10 test matches, eight of them have been in Sri Lanka, six of them have been at goal, <laughs> two of them have been at Colombo. Um, 12 wickets at goal, nine at goal, eight at goal, uh, three in Christchurch, one in Wellington, 
10 in Gaul, 7 in Gaul, 7 in Gaul, 2 in Colombo, 8 in Colombo. He hoovers them up, 67 wickets at 26 at the moment from his 10 I, games. I wonder whether we're back in Gaul next February this time last year, or we're back in Sri Lanka, I should say. I wonder whether it'll be two tests in Gaul or whether they'll they'll spread their wings a bit and we'll go up to up north to to Candy or over to Colombo or I hope I kind of hope we do. I loved our fortnight in Gaul in 2022. It was very convenient for us not having to go anywhere and being able to set up shop for two weeks in one place, which on tour is always appreciated. But um, Fort week. Fort week. But, yes, uh, anyway, we'll find out. Jeff, our last stop today, we're going back to India where we started with uh, the England physical disability men's team. Uh, mentioned last week they were playing a, a five-game T20 series. They won twice over there. The last of those games was at Ahmedabad at the Modi Stadium, which is incredible. They got to play at a, a ground like that. But, yeah, India won the series 3-2 as they're expected to do. Um, and as we mentioned last week, a couple of our friends from the Lord's Taverners who've been on the show before, Will Flynn and James Norden, uh, were part of that successful England team at Ahmedabad. And yeah, just noting on the way through that we're fit and firing with our recruitment efforts to the marathon, half marathon, 10K for Edinburgh. Got another request this morning to see if they can get a last entry into the half marathon before they finally cut off and see how we go on that front. But the 10K is still possible. We've got plenty of room there. We've got more than 40 people running. Jeff's coming. I'm obviously running. We're all going to be there. So if you want to run, get in touch right away. (laughs) Find me, find Jeff, find one of us, and we'll put you in touch with Sadiq and the team at the Lord's Taverners. And uh, if you want to come and be part of it and just be part of the share house, there, that, that's a thing that's happening. There are lots of different Airbnbs. We want to come and watch. And our fundraising efforts will dramatically enhance, well, we will start our fundraising. We haven't started yet. Our fundraising, 30K is the target, and all the links are in the show notes. But, yeah, a lot more to come for the Lord's Taverners who are into their 74th year. Uh, in 2024, some of the best people in cricket doing great things and uh, looking forward to supporting them uh, through all our work in Edinburgh throughout 2024 as well. Get a motorised esky. This is my plan. Motorised esky and a kilt. Um, I feel like that would be a really pleasant way to do 42Ks, um, you know, cheer everybody on. And you could find, you could you could work it out so that it doesn't need to be one where the full lid lifts up, you know, so that you could you could, you could could have the excuse of dishing out um, drinks to people along the way as they try to get through the, the, the kilt. The full, the full lid of the kilt, I think you were talking about there. That's oh, yeah. A whole yeah, other thing. We could, we could dish a few things out from there as well, I suppose. It'll be a breezy experience all the way around, but that's that's the optimum way to do uh, the 20, what is it, 20 miles? Uh, 26.1 mile for the full marathon. So we've got about, I think we've got about eight marathon runners. Most people are doing the half and then about a dozen or so doing the 10K, maybe 10 doing the 10K. Um, of which, Jeff, um, we need to um, get your application in as well. I know we've been talking about this. You keep saying boys, that. But got to get it done. I don't, I don't know your date of birth. I was going to do it, but I'm like, because you're so vague about these things. <laughs> I, actually, I, I know roughly when your birthday is. I could narrow it down to three or four different dates, but I don't know yep. for sure. So over mm-hmm. to you. I'm very coy. I'm very coy about personal you details. Are. I don't, don't, don't like giving away too much for reasons like this, because you, you, never, you let someone know when your birthday is, the next thing you know, they fucking signed you up to a marathon. Um, yeah, or, you know, subscribe to you to Fishing and Shooting Monthly magazine or something. All right, this has been our longest weekly show in a long time. We'll be back to a, a regular kind of uh, length next week. We've got a lot more coming in the feed on the weekend. There will be story time as always. There's another episode we've got coming out early next week, which is one of our specials. We've got weekly, uh, daily shows rather, in the build-up to the Rajkot Test Match and the Women's Test at Perth. Then Jeff and I will be reunited in New Zealand. In Well, not even New Zealand, in Australia. I'm in Australia in a fortnight's time, so we'll be able to do 
uh, a couple of shows there before we both go over to New Zealand together. Thank you for listening. If you like what we do, patreon.com forward slash the final word, become part of the fun, submit a nerd pledge, get involved on our Discord channel. Uh, and that's it. That's us done. Thanks for being part of it. Talk that's again it. soon. See ya. So you know what I meant here. I had to go.